Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Hi, and welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. We are so excited about our second official roundtable, and it's been coordinated and generally hosted by Ellen Hunt, so thank you for that. We are so excited to be here with our guests today, Gwen Hassan and Kim Yapchai. They'll both introduce themselves. Today's topic is the state of the profession, and I'm really looking forward to this interesting conversation with these wonderful leaders about where we think we are and talking about the future. And with that, I will turn it over to you, Ellen, to, to get us started and introduce yourself. Great. Thank you, Lisa. Welcome. For those of you that don't know me, I'm Ellen Hunt. I've been a former chief ethics and compliance officer, chief audit officer, and chief privacy officer, and currently I'm consulting. And I'm thrilled to be part of the roundtable because I think these discussions are important for us to have. And we've chosen the topic of the state of the profession. And the reason is after the last SCCE, I left very excited seeing all my friends, meeting new ones and seeing old ones, but also a little concerned about it's 30 plus years and where are we? It seems to me when I talk to other professionals that we're fighting some of the same battles, right? We still don't report to the CEO, but still to the GC. We still lack resources and can't get access to data and are fighting for budget and struggling for that seat at the table. So I just thought it would be good for us to talk about this, and I'll turn it over to Gwen to introduce herself. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Ellen. I'm Gwen Hassan. I'm the Deputy Chief Compliance Officer for Unisys, which is a computer software and solutions company. They provide digital workforce solutions as well as cloud-based solutions and do some consulting work around those areas as well. I have been with them only a few months. I started this past summer, but prior to that have worked as the head of compliance for a few different companies, building global compliance programs for CNH, for Navistar, um, and before that, a few other roles in here in Chicago. Way, way back, of course, when I was a baby lawyer, I worked for Ellen, which is how we have remained connected over all these years. So I'm thrilled to, to be part of the roundtable. I think it's a great new format, and I'm excited to participate today. I have lots of thoughts on the state of the profession, so I look forward to our chat. Kim, why don't we turn it over to you to introduce yourself? Yeah, such an honor to be here. Thanks, everyone. Um, my name is Kim Yapchai. I have spent 30 years in-house and a good portion of that in compliance positions. I've built two award-winning programs and done this in Fortune 200 multinational companies where anything can happen anywhere in the world. <laughs> I am currently a board member of Direct Women, which is a nonprofit focused on promoting women to be public company board members. So having a lot of fun with that right now. Great. So here we are, 30 years plus, And I think, you know, 
some of us really feeling sometimes that we're not valued and not appreciated, not only as professionals, but also the ethics and compliance program. Kim, tell us, what do you think about the state of the profession? Yeah, unfortunately, Ellen, I think we've made progress, but I think there is variability, variation out there. And in fact, my last two roles, when I interviewed with the CEOs, I'll be honest with you, I said to both of them, if you're hiring me just to come here and put some pretty curtains up, make everything look pretty, don't hire me. I'm not the right person. If you're hire, if you want someone to come here and transform your program into a world-class program and have a culture to match, then I'm the right person. Right. And, and it's not a threat, but you often don't know, are the people that are hiring you truly committed or do they want just something to check the box? So that's my way. And I've said that in other interviews and not gotten the jobs. <laughs> that's part of my screening process, I guess. It's brave. It's brave. Lisa, your thoughts. In a, I haven't been in the profession as long as the three of you have. It's been a while, but I, so I have both a sense of not knowing better and some days more uh, optimism than others. And I think one of the things that I try to reflect on in this, and I came out of this year's feeling particularly optimistic about the function. The two things that I keep in mind is one, I feel like in the last few years, just our political, without getting too involved in it, world of people doing things that and feeling rewarded for things that we think are non-ethical or non-compliant have caused a real challenge in trying to, to, to advocate for the importance of our programs day to day. And I think that it's an exhausting challenge. I think the second point that I will have on it is that I don't think, I think we are a profession now that people know what our intent and what we are trying to do is. And that if we're not getting a seat at the table, I think other functions that are trying to do similar things are feeling the same way. So I have some real concerns going forward, but I also see in some ways where this profession has come. And I think sometimes we forget to reflect a little bit on that part as well in that there's been some Herculean work done in some particularly crazy times, especially over the last 10 to 15 years. So I, I think I have tempered optimism. So Gwen? I like that phrase, tempered optimism. That's a good one. So I, I guess I, I fall I, I fall in the middle. So I, let's say I'm in my 27th year of practice. And I on the positive side, I will say when I started, the concept of a compliance officer and a compliance function was something that was new and really a heavy lift when talking to companies about compliance because it was almost unheard of to have a separate compliance department and a separate compliance team and report into the board. And it became very much an offshoot of what the law department was already doing was where it was when I came in to the profession. And I've seen a lot of improvement in that over the course of the last 27 years, a lot of which I will attribute to organizations like SCCE. I really think they've done a lot to elevate the status of the profession. Um, I'll also, of course, uh, give a shout out to the colleges and uh, law schools that are now teaching 
separate programs in compliance because I think that makes a big difference in terms of the future of the function because there's a lot of young young people, Gen Z people who are studying compliance and as a specific degree, which is certainly didn't exist when, when I went to law school. I, I think it's hopeful from that standpoint. Comma, however, <laughs> I will say there is still a lot of uh, justifying the existence of compliance. Why is it important? What does it mean? Is it more than a cost center? What is the real goal? And that's frustrating to me that almost 30 years later, we're still having to justify the existence of what we do. I find frustrating. Um, to Lisa's point too, I think the beyond just the political environment, um, some of the movements we've seen socially have had a huge impact on the compliance profession. Um, when you look at things like Black Lives Matter, when you look at Speak Up, Me Too, when you think about ESG as a movement in general, there's been kind of positives and negatives there where there's real support for looking at culture and making cultural changes. However, there's also real backlash about whether it is woke and whether it is too woke and whether it actually connects to dollars. I, I'm simultaneously pleased at some of the progress we've made and frustrated by the fact that we still have uh, a lot of ground to cover, which I was thinking by this point, we would have solidified and not need to keep explaining. I think that is an excellent point. I once had a boss, and you'll know who he was, when, who said to me as I came in with what I thought was a terribly important issue, he said to me, Ellen, if it doesn't bring a dollar in the door, why is it taking a minute of my time? Mm -hmm. And of course, I thought that was harsh, but in mm -hmm. fact, it was a lesson. And it is that we've got to connect this to the business. And we talk about Black Lives Matters, Me Too, the social unrest, whether you're woke or unwoke. I think the real point is for us as ethics and compliance professionals of how do you tie it to making the business successful? And the more you can do that, because that's real and authentic, the more traction and support you'll have. And I think you always have some detractors, right? But I think that when you can really demonstrate that acting ethically has an ethics premium, it pays off. It, it really makes sense. You know, when you think about that, the other thing is we are the deliverer of bad news. When we have to talk to the CEO or the board or a high-level executive who's a superstar and tell them that things have not gone well in their department, there's somebody who's behaving badly, it's embarrassing. And I think that's why we're in the spot where we are. We're always the unwanted dinner guest. People like us think they need us, but yeah, the, be better, the better party without us. But tell, tell us your thoughts about why do you think we are where we are? Yeah. <clears throat> so I'm, I'm a bit torn, Ellen. I do. There are those moments where we have to play police and be the bad cop and investigate and tell people bad news or things like that. But I have to say, <clears throat> I work really hard to be the business partner that people want to have people there. Okay. And to give you an idea, 
when I came to Whirlpool, they had some really harsh antitrust enforcement. One of the former executives is still on the Interpol watch list. Okay, so it, it just if compliance was a four-letter word, right? Nobody wanted to touch that with a 10-foot pole. But by helping people to understand the value and to show how it builds our culture, gives us a competitive advantage, it protects our brand and does all those other things and doing it in a fun way. By the time I left, I had a wait list of business people who wanted to help me with events, right? And, and you can, to your point, relate it to the business. Even if you hadn't had a, a huge antitrust or other event to be like, okay, how much did we spend on that? And do we, did it add to the bottom line? No, you can use the research from the certified fraud examiners every year. They publish basically what they think companies lose, maybe three to 5% of revenue to fraud. And every time I say that to a C CFO, they're like, oh yeah, at least. And that's people stealing inventory, people faking time cards, all of the sort of office supplies, whatever you want to call it. And then you turn that on your head and you say, okay, if we're better than the rest and we're just losing 1% of that, what could we use with 1%? Like we're a $17 billion company. If you had 1% 1, 1 of that in your budget, what could you do with that? And people, the wheels start turning and they realize, oh, holy crap. Okay, I want these people in here building my culture, building my processes so that this stuff doesn't happen. Gwen, tell us your thoughts. Yeah, I I think of a former boss as well, not the same one, Ellen, but who one of the first meetings we had, I was talking about our Speak Up program and comparing the number of helpline reports that we got to benchmark. And we were significantly below benchmark at this company. And he was genuinely um, dumbfounded as to why that was a problem. He, I think, really earnestly was struggling with the idea that more helpline reports is better. And I remember him saying to me specifically, why would we want more problems? I don't understand. When, why is more problems better? And we had to have the, the very baseline conversation that it's not that there aren't no, any problems when they're not reported, it's that we don't learn about them and we don't have the chance to, to do anything about it and to be the value protector that compliance is supposed to be. And when, once we, and this took a literally a year of conversations back and forth before he, he finally started to connect the dots. So I think how we got here is, is a, an arc of starting out at a place where people see you as the police, to Kim's point. They see you as the department of no, spelled N-O. They see you as the people you should work around because they're just going to slow down your process. And it has, over time, finally evolved or is evolving to a place where it's a, literally a value protector. It is that a best case scenario, 1% of revenue, maybe three, maybe 5% of revenue that you are protecting for the company and helping them keep. Yeah. As somebody opposed to sending out the door. Yeah. Somebody else told me that a compliance program would bring in or bring it back more revenue than a lot of their own business ideas. 
<laughs> that's higher margin than the new product we're launching. <laughs> right. No, exactly. Exactly. So I think that's still part of the evolution is there's, and I, again, I go back to school, which is, I think there's a real gap in a lot of MBA programs that people are coming out without understanding that there is that value that comes back and that the ROI of compliance is very real. And I hope we'll continue to be able to teach people that as we go along. I saw a statistic, and I don't know if it's valid, right? But that for every one concern that is reported, regardless of the channel, there are six others that aren't, right? That the compliance department never hears about. So it's the same, it's the same theory that you're proposing. If you really knew about those other ones, what could you be doing to improve the business? And it's interesting when you think about that. One of the things I did from a strategy perspective is I took the number of questions that were asked and I did a ratio to the number of concerns. Because like you, Kim, I worked really hard to build those relationships and I wanted people, come ask me, right? We can probably figure this out. And another metric that I used was how many times did we say yes compared to how many times did we say no? Now, we might not have said yes to the original proposal, but did we get the business people where they needed to go most of the time? And yeah, the answer was, yeah, we did. Um, so I think sometimes we don't promote ourselves enough or market ourselves enough. Um, but when you think about strategies and ways to elevate your program, Lisa, share some with us. I have a couple of different things. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. How do you elevate a program and how do you also become part of the, almost like the fixture, like the day-to-day, like all their parts are. I think a few things that I have thought about a lot lately and have achieved, I think, is by really making sure that I figure out who the key relationships are and really listening to what they think compliance is. Because a lot of times those people also will think about ethical decision-making and trying to do the right thing. And they're not as well written, I may not understand their business as much. So making sure I understand some of the nuances of the 30 things they're dealing with every day and the fact that they may be feeling not so appreciated or that people aren't hearing them, I want to hear what their concerns are, explain why mine, that thing I'm raising or this ties into that, why it's important and how I can help them with that that even if it isn't necessarily what's on my KPIs or what needs to get done for our function on a daily basis, those things come back at, at all different levels for people to reach out to you when something goes wrong, because they know even if you don't ultimately you come to an agreement on something, they know you're trying to do the right thing and you actually aren't just caring about checking a box. So I think that that is one of the sort of smaller things that becomes bigger uh, over time and to do that in a, in a strategic way. I think you know, another thing about it is to frame it a little bit more in the we are trying to help you do the right thing, as opposed to the we are going to say no to things. To, basically, we're not, not, not we're not the sheriff. We're not going to enable bad things. But what you consider a risk versus what may be a risk globally, particularly an organization like mine, where you have a lot of smaller companies that were merged in and countries that didn't have to deal with with the FCPK, FCPA, UK Bribery Act, other countries things, and trying to explain to somebody this is what you need to do, that's not going to go anywhere with that. So just combination on, on, on different levels. There are larger strategic things that one can do, but knowing that you're trusted and credible, I think is a huge part of it. Kim, you have tips for us? Yeah, so 
what, what I've found to really resonate because nobody thinks they need training on ethics and compliance. You're talking to somebody else, not them, right? It, somebody else is the problem. It is approaching it from the standpoint of, would you like to hear what other leaders and other companies do? What, do, what they tell their teams, what they embed in their processes, and to sympathize with them to say, look, a lot of law is not intuitive. We, you want to be competitive. You want to kill the competition, right? <laughs> Smush them like a bug, dominate, all these sort of things. It's not intuitive. And no one read them nursery rhymes about antitrust or FCPA <laughs> growing up. And I don't want them to get fired, to in jail, right? Their families would be really sad. They would miss them. I want to do things that help protect them and their team. So by framing it there that I'm here to hopefully avoid the bad stuff from happening, or if something goes off the rail, I want you to be able to find out about it as quickly as possible so you can fix it when it's small and little, right? Rather when it's the dawn raid by a DOJ or somebody else. So really putting ourselves in their shoes. It is, we're coming in there messing with their process. We don't understand the business. We don't get it, right? So really putting ourselves in their shoes so that we can understand we're not just there to catch bad people doing bad things. I know you've got some tips. <laughs> I have some thoughts, yes. I agree with both Lisa and Kim that relationship building is really your jumping off spot because unless they see you as a trusted advisor, as their advocate in the business, they're not going to be as willing to partner with you. But I will say, I think that the compliance profession in general can do a better job of communicating their value. And by that, speaking in the language of the business, literally using terms like return on investment um, and self-advocating, marketing the program, not just to employees, but to the C-suite and to the board, tracking metrics and data that show, hey, here's how much we saved the company last quarter. Here's you know, how many uh, incidents of fraud we uncovered and the estimated financial exposure that we were able to avoid because of our work. And when you can communicate the value in dollars of a compliance program, you're so much more likely to get the attention of the business because they think in dollars. They think in terms of what's our profit margin for this? What's our return on investment here? What's our margin going to be? All of those calculus needs to be applied to your compliance program and communicated regularly so that they see in dollars, what the value of the program is. One of, my, one of my favorite colleagues ever was at a former company, was the head of internal audit. And he was fantastic because every quarter he published a, a report card, not for different parts of the business, not for different segments or geographies, but for internal audit. And he issued a report card that showed here is the amount that internal audit cost this company last quarter in terms of staffing, oversight, travel expenses. Here's what we cost you. And here is what we uncovered in terms of dollar amount that we saved. And then literally at the end of every quarter, at the bottom of every report, 
single slide that showed the return on investment for internal audit. And he was able to demonstrate quarter after quarter that they more than paid for themselves, that they were paying for themselves multiple times over by the end of the year. And I, that was such an important learning for me because he was, you know, in an assurance function, but purposely translating his value into a measure that made sense to the business. So I've stolen that. And I now use that in every company that I, when the timing is right and I can get to that place with the company, start publishing a report card for compliance every quarter that shows here's the number of investigations we ran. Here's what those investigations would have cost had we sent them to outside counsel. Here's how much money we saved the company by doing it ourselves. Here's the number of cases of fraud we uncovered. And here's the financial exposure that we were able to avoid because of that. And I literally run a return on investment calculation of here's how much the compliance function cost you last quarter. And here's how much we saved you last quarter. I think that goes so far in elevating the function, not within just the company itself, but especially to the C-suite and to the board as well. But Gwen, I play on that, those initials for ROI instead of return on investment. I call it return on integrity. Oh, I love that. Yep. Stealing that. 100%. 100%. <laughs> you should trademark that or else I'm going to I'm going to use it. Yeah. One one area I think about when we think about the future that I I don't see a lot of companies really uh leveraging and utilizing is looking at attrition rate. And right, we know for every board of directors attracting and retaining talent is on that top 10 if not the top 5. And we know we have some generational differences in our workers, uh, particularly younger workers wanting to feel that they work for our companies whose values align with theirs. There's a, the term ethics refugees, the folks who leave who don't raise their voice. And I think we haven't done a very good job of figuring out how do we impact the attrition rate and how do we impact the attraction of talent It'd be nice to get numbers behind that because I I think we really do. And I think that there are people who go through the investigation experience and decide to stay as a result of it. And because they've either been given a second chance or they thought the process was fair or whatever it might be, but we don't, I don't think we evaluate that. So when you think about the future, right, what does it look like if we don't change? Lisa, tell us, what do you think? I think the problem with not changing is always a problem, whether it's us or anyone else. We can't just stick. And I think we were talking about at the beginning, have we changed? Where, how far have we come? We've come somewhere, but if we stay in the same place, even with new challenges every day, ESG, AI, you name the acronym of the week, but we have to stay abreast of all of that and if we choose to take a step backwards, which is going back into the yes, no, let's talk, let's give the word and this the words and the law of regulations, then we're never going to be at the table and we're never going to be considered something that's benefiting the function. Oftentimes it was mentioned, you have mentioned this a couple of times, but whenever when people talk about me as a cough center, I often tell them I prefer my I prefer the term revenue protector and I'd like them to call me that in the future. And they left because they actually understand that a little bit and I think being trusted on those things and being a part of that, I think if we don't do that, 
then if we stay the same or go backwards, we're never going to be at the place we want to be or at the place I think our organizations need us to be because there are so many ethical and authority questions happening. Uh, I guess that would be my take. And then, Gwen, what about you? Yeah, I agree. I actually, and maybe I'm overstating our importance because I, I do believe that we are, as a profession, one of the most important professions that's out there. And I know that's self-serving to say, but um, I think that if we don't continue to grow in terms of partnership with the business and the ability to prove our value and use the language of the business, that we really run the risk of devaluing our work, which I think would be horrible, but also, and again, not to overstate, but contributing to the moral decline of corporate America. How about that for a big statement? Um, I really see it as the role of our profession to be a check, as a check and balance in terms of what corporate America looks like, and not just America, corporates worldwide, global corporates look like, the values that they actually live by, and their impact on the world in general. And I think there's a real opportunity that some companies are finally recognizing to not only be the company that has a great bottom line, but the company that makes the world a better place for its constituents, for its customers, for its employees, for its investors. And I think that the role of compliance at its best is to really create that holistic view of what a company is. And that's a real change from where we were even 20 years ago, where the real focus was the bottom line. And I see if we don't continue to grow and change as a profession that we're running the risk of turning a blind eye to corporate opportunism and to the lack of positive impact on the world and the people in it. They used to say it's profit, then it was people, purpose, and profit. And now I think it's purpose that gets the people to make the profit, right? And I don't think you're going to be a resilient company without that. Kim, your thoughts? Yeah, so I I do see Compliance 1.0 as being the police, right? Compliance 2.0, now we're looking at culture and Working with HR, in fact, my last VP of HR said I was the first compliance officer that ever asked him for engagement scores or cared about him. And I'm like, but I need that to interpret my data. Like, how can you up without it? And then compliance 3.0, I think, is really the type of ESG role where that I had in my last role and actually reported to the CEO as part of the executive leadership team. And it is just another step function change of being, as Lisa mentioned, this revenue protector, brand protector, incorporating purpose. And it is the people that drive everything. And all of this leads to better profits. It's better risk management, right? So I see things trending in that way. We don't have to just stay in this little box that was built initially for us. There's so much more that we can do. And these are things, both compliance and ESG, that haven't existed as long as accounting and finance and HR. And so people don't understand it. We have to advocate for it if we want to see the change. We can't just expect it'll happen and and be meaningful. That 
I have recently become fascinated with the concept of blue zones, as I think I've spoken with all of you about. I'm, I'm fascinated with it not only just because it helps people live longer and healthier, but the concept that you can create your own. With your surroundings and the way your your daily habits and other things, you can create your own. I just think it's incredibly important for ethics and compliance professionals to have their blue zone or their network or their support group or whatever you want to call it, because I think it can be a very lonely, stressful, <laughs> anxiety-provoking job if you isolate yourself, right? If you feel that you're fighting these battles all by yourself, where we've shared a whole bunch that we've all shared, right? We've all gone through through those. So I think it becomes really important to think about creating that network, whether you're doing it internally or externally. Sometimes we think we only need to be with ethics and compliance professionals, but actually make friends with that CFO, that internal auditor, that human resources person, right? And include them maybe in your advisory board or your support group or or however, an ad hoc committee or whatever it might be. Because I think that becomes terribly important to get some affirmation that maybe these things aren't personal to you. (laughs) You're not the only one going through it. And you might, you might really just learn a lot of good stuff. So Lisa, share us, share your thoughts on things for the professionals to do self-care. First of all, one of the things that I think you should do for self-care, which is counterproductive, counter just spend time with people that have nothing to do with your business or what you do, even peripherally to build that. Because I think there's something that's really nice when you do when certain activities in your life as part of my accountability. I'm starting a, an improv class next week. So nobody's going to be, that may have something, but what I'm saying is no one's going to have any idea or care about they might, but that's not why I'm doing it. And that makes me, I'm, I'm a little nervous, but I'm struggling in a comfort zone with that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to make your own blue zone with the people in your community. The three of you, as I sit here I, uh, earlier in this, I'm just going to say, I remember when I started in this field and started to get to know all of you, if I thought I'd be able to consider you my you know, friends, as well as advocates, mentors, and colleagues, like, and just getting to spend time with you all makes me feel very energized about the future of this profession. And at the same thing, you can bring that enthusiasm and that because you have that group and feel like you have that external support, you can bring it into your work in your own way because you know that on that day when things don't go so well or something else, it's not the end of the world and somebody else is is there for you. So those would be my two points on that. Yeah, so the rest of my family is in the medical field. And I like to say, when I have a bad day at work, nobody dies. So <laughs> it's just get over yourself, right? Life is hard, whatever. You've got to make time to have a life, as Lisa said, and find joy and travel or do whatever makes you happy. It's a job. Rome wasn't built in the day. Keep your perspective and, and it'll all be okay. No one ever has enough resources, no matter what department they're in. I agree with all of those things. And I will also say, I think it's super important to um, get out of not only your own head, but out of the compliance space for a while. I know I have been guilty of, I'm reading articles about the DOJ releases and I'm reading my, my CEP magazine and I am focused on what the newest corporate scandal is. 
I sometimes need to go on a diet. And I mean that from an information standpoint. I need to not watch things that are about corporate scandals, not spend my weekends walking, watching documentaries about the Theranos case or the, the Purdue Pharma case, to take a purposeful pause, to gather different sets of information, different perspectives, so I don't become so overwhelmed with you know, how much more I think there is to do. So that is my biggest self-care comment or suggestion is take a purposeful pause in where you're getting your data from and look for other sources. I want to thank you both, Gwen and, and, and Kim, for being our roundtable guests. It's just been a wonderful conversation. Lisa, you have any last-minute comments or announcements? I think that this, I think this has been fabulous. Again, the only other things I'll mention, we've got some other exciting roundtables and, and guests coming up. And as we're starting this new format, really hope that people feel like they can join the podcast community or message any of us directly about what they want, what they're seeing, because this is also another way of having a blue zone. I think we're all very proud of the quick community for that. And with that, I will close this off and say thank you so much to you all, also to Corporate Compliance Insights, our sponsor. And you can hear us on the Compliance Podcast Network or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank thank you, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.